Well, good morning. We're in First Peter chapter five, and um, as you may know, Manuel is coming back from his sabbatical this next week, and so we are very much looking forward and excited to his return. I am very excited for Pastor uh, Manuel to be back with us. Um, this week, I was thinking about before the week on what what we need this morning, this, this, after this election week. And the word that we need for all of us, whether you find yourself excited or you're sad, whether you're celebrating or you feel discouraged this week, uh, today, the word that we need as the people of God is from 1 Peter 5, verses 5b, which says, Close yourself one another in humility toward each other. This has been, as you know, probably one of the most heavy, anxiety-filled, divisive weeks that we have experienced. Whether you're sad or, or celebrating, what we need here is to seek humility together as a people of God. And as we come to God's Word, that's what we get. We have good news that can bring us humility. We have good news. The good news of the Gospel, that is, that we believe in the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And this is the good news that we're going to get to this morning. But first, let me pray. Father, we pray that by Your Spirit, You would show us Christ Jesus, that we would look to Him with the eyes of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's four words that we're going to look at today. Humility, anxiety, fear, and Grace, the God of grace. First, thinking about humility, I'll start with this story. Uh, a rather depressing and cynical story from uh, the author Dostoevsky. And, and this is a story uh, from Dostoevsky in which there's a man, and he's weary with the world, and he, have self, he has become so weary with himself as well that he's decided to drink himself into a stupor and into death. But the problem runs out is that he runs out of vodka in his apartment. He's out of vodka, and as he makes his way to this liquor store to get more vodka, something strange happens. This little girl who's no more than a few years old waddles up to him and starts pulling on his trousers. And he doesn't know what she's saying, but he figures out that she's basically lost and doesn't know where her parents are. But his selfish despair is running deep that day. And so he brushes the lost little girl aside and he goes back up to his apartment and he's about to kill himself and fall into this drunken stupor. And he has this strange dream. And in this dream, he finds himself in a world that is untouched by sin. Everyone is only thinking about the good of their neighbor. They're only thinking about speaking words of encouragement and of love. That is, until he arrives. And as he arrives in this world... One by one, he begins to teach the people how to lie, how to cheat, and how to steal. And the world starts to get dark. The world begins to change. And in the words of Dostoevsky, this is what he says in this short story. Each of these people began to love himself better than anyone else. And indeed, they could not do otherwise Every one of them became so jealous of his own personality that he strove with might and main to belittle and humiliate it in others 
And therein he saw the whole purpose of his life. Now, you've got to love the depressing nature of, of Russian literature sometimes. In this story, we see how pride, it infects and it destroys a community. That loving ourselves better than our neighbors, better than others, it wreaks havoc on a people. Being selfishly absorbed with ourselves, which is pride, it devastates the people, the church of God. And so, I think this is why Peter, at the end of his epistle, says, clothe yourselves with humility towards each other, each and every one of you. He says, to the elect exiles, you who have been chosen but rejected, who are facing suffering, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Now, what is humility? C.S. Lewis has a really great definition where he clearly states, humility is not uh, thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is that freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's when a humble person is self-forgetful because she is focused on other people. His concern is for others. I was talking uh, with a college student, and sometimes we can get really confused about humility. I was talking with a college student, and she said, you know, when I go into a a room, uh, a classroom, I know I'm not the smartest person in the room. I look around, and I know that there's a lot of other smarter people than me. And, and, and I said to her, well, hold on, that's not what humility is. Humility isn't going into a room and saying, they're smarter and they're smarter and they're smarter. I know that. Because I actually know that this woman was probably the smartest person in the room. C.S. Lewis explains it well, what humility is. Again, he says, don't imagine that if you meet a humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. He won't be telling you that. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you and in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who can enjoy life so much. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And you know, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we see in Jesus Christ himself. He represents this. Jesus is the strongest, most confident human who ever lived. And yet in Matthew 11, he tells us his very heart. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly. That word lowly is humble. Jesus is humble. Jesus is the most approachable person that you and I have ever encountered. Why? Because he is lowly. He's humble. He takes an interest in you. He cares about you. That's a picture of humility. And Peter is telling us in our relationships that we too must clothe ourselves in this type of humility. We think about why it's so important to close ourselves as Christians in humility in our relationships with each other. Because you just go back to Dostoevsky's story. That when we become proud and when we don't have humility, it destroys our community. It destroys the people we're ripped apart like that story. For us to be a church that sticks together through suffering, it requires that we be concerned deeply with each other and each other's needs. That's humility. Even as we deal with our own suffering. 
But he gives an even more important reason for humility than that it matters for holding a community together. He actually says it in verse 5, clothe yourselves, look with me, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? Because here's the reason. He says, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Categorically, Peter is saying God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Chew on that for a minute. This is a broad principle in Scripture that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In fact, Peter is quoting Proverbs. This proverbial wisdom in chapter 3, he says, towards the scoffers, he scoffs. But to the humble, he gives favor. You see, God here, what Peter is saying, God actually puts his almighty hand of opposition upon those who are proud, upon those who scoff, upon those who scorn. His hand of opposition. But he gives favor and support to those who are humble. I think one of the best examples that we have in Scripture is the story uh, in the book of Daniel of the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's told in this dream that he is going to be humbled, that he is going to be cut down. And King Nebuchadnezzar is warned from Daniel. And Daniel says this, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, good talk, Daniel. I'll list up, well, whatever. And the king of Babylon, he's walking on the roof of his house and he looks at, out at Babylon and he looks out and he says, is, that, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for the greatness of my own name. And at that very moment, he's driven out of the palace. He's driven out and he becomes crazy in his mind. And he starts eating grass like a cow. And his body is wet with dew. And his hair grows out like feathers. And his nails were like a bird's claws. He's humiliated like an animal. Eventually he's restored, and this is what King Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who are pride, who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. And this is why we must clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. And you think in our lives, one of the kindest things that God can sometimes do in our life is to oppose us in our pride. When your self is centered upon the particular vision of a successful career or of your family, He opposes our pride. Gently and firmly. Where we are absorbed in people's approval, he gently and firmly opposes our pride. When we're focused on controlling the world around us, he gently and firmly opposes our pride. You see, we ought to dress ourselves in humility with each other. This is a fundamental requirement, as I saw, as I posted in the... um, Facebook page the other day. This is a fundamental requirement, humility. The Lord breaks it down for us in Micah 6, 8, where he says, 
He has told you, O oh man, what, it is, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So you think about a moment this week. We are in a deeply partisan country. We're in a deeply partisan families. Our church can be partisan. And I'm not saying for us to put aside any of our political convictions at all. But what I am saying is, what if as we as Christians, what if we walk humbly with our God in our civic pursuit of justice and mercy? What if this is what we're clothed in? What if this is what we're known for, our humility? Now take a deep breath. And think about how have you felt this week? Anxious? That's been the word that everywhere you hear on media, talking about anxious, anxious, anxious. Do you know that humility and anxiety are actually connected in Scripture? Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Humble yourselves, casting your anxieties upon Him because He cares. We'll clarify things. First, we talk about anxiety a lot, and Our talk of anxiety doesn't automatically mean that we're talking about sin. Oftentimes when we are in in Christianity, we think anxiety and we instantly think that we're talking about sin. But that's not always the case. That's not oftentimes the case. Paul talks about it actually in 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking about all the hardships that he's faced from from, uh, being in prison to shipwrecks to all of the things. Even he says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, and apart from all these other things, I have the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. You see, there can, like like Paul, there can be the pressure of a great concern for something, of an anxiety even called, and it not be sin. You take Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was anxious. He was burdened. He was weighed down physically, physiologically. He's under so much pressure and concern, bodily anxiety, yet he did not sin. There's a a clinical psychologist named Dr. John Cox, and he's part of our our denomination. And he's at this conference, uh, teaching at this conference about grief and depression. And afterwards, this elderly lady walks up to him in this line, and she comes up and tells him how her husband of like 92 years had just died this year. Uh, and she's hurting, and she's depressed. And she says to him, you know the worst part? I know that I'm letting God down. I'm afraid. I'm alone in my house now. I've never been by myself, and I'm afraid. And I know that God says anxiety is a sin, and now I'm even letting God down. And he gently takes her in the hand and says, that is not sin here. Not all the exhortations that are in the Bible carry the same weight of a moral command. Not every admonition, the admonition, do not be anxious. It's not always about sin. It's meant rather to be a comfort. It's meant to be a comfort. 
that we don't need to be afraid even though your husband of 92 years is no longer here. Don't be anxious about anything. It's meant to be a comfort, not a force of shame. And so here's the thing. He says then after that, nonetheless, Peter comforts us, but he also challenges us when it comes to our anxiety. Notice the connection again between humbling ourselves and casting our anxieties upon God in verse 6 and 7. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties upon him. You see, in this passage, humble yourself is the command. We are called to humble ourselves. But casting our anxieties upon the Lord, it, it modifies the verb to humble ourselves. Giving our, but another way to put it is, giving our burdens to the Lord is what happens when we obey the command to humble ourselves before Him. Anxiety is relieved, in a sense here, when we obey the command of humbling ourselves. I think this clarifies what we do here. Let's just say you're feeling anxious. You're feeling super anxious. And I just came up to you, or Pastor Manuel came up to you, and we said, just cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Do you know what to do in that moment? I'm like, what, what does that mean? You just like, take it off. I got this pressure on my back, and I'm just going to take it, and here you go. I mean, we know it means there's prayer as a significant part of this. But I think that oftentimes we don't know exactly what to do there. It's kind of like the Saturday Night Live skit uh, where there's this woman who's afraid of being buried, in a bo- buried alive in a box, this old one if you've seen that. And she's like, I'm just afraid that I'm going to be buried alive in a box. And she's very nervous about it. And the therapist just says, stop it. Stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it, or I will bury you alive in a box. You see, sometimes the more we're just we have, we're anxious about something, and the more we're afraid of our anxiety or something like that, and we just say, just deal with my anxiety, that doesn't deal with it. We don't know what to do there. But humbling ourselves is something we understand. Becoming self-forgetful and concerned with others, it is clear. And so scripturally, do we want to become less anxious? Well, in Scripture, part of the solution to growing uh, and being free from anxiety is to grow in humility. Part of the freedom of self-forgetfulness is that we actually find relief from the crushing weight of our uh, self-anxieties. And this is a hard word, to humble ourselves. The good news for us is that it is the kindness and care of God that calls us to humility. And I think, I wonder, when you think about the mighty hand of God and humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, what do you think of? Is he shaking an angry fist at you? Or is he scolding a scolding finger at you? No. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because we know that He's going to exalt you at the right time. And it says that cast our anxieties upon Him because He cares. You see, His mighty hands that we humble ourselves under are strong hands. They're fatherly hands. They're fatherly hands who make very good and precious promises. These are the hands that we humble ourselves under. But this may be hard because we have a lot of 
fears that contradict the promises of God. In verse 8 it says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, the devil has a bark and he has a bite. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A bark and a bite. And we need to be watchful of his bark and his bite. His bark is this. He prowls around like a roaring lion. And what is the, what is the roar of a lion or an animal meant to do? It intimidates. It terrifies. It fills its prey with paralyzing fear. In high school, I spent a few weeks in Kenya, and we went out to this remote Maasai tribe and stayed in this little village that was surrounded by briar bushes as fences. And in the dark of night, there were lions that would actually come around, and we could hear the low growl of the lions at night. We could hear them bellow out to one another, and they would call out, and the sounds and their grunts, even that sound was terrifying. And I was like, are you sure this like, briar fence is going to keep them out from coming in? I would barely sleep. You see, the very sound of a lion, it fills you with overwhelming fear. And that's what Satan seeks to do. He seeks to overwhelm us with fear. So are we anxious and are we afraid? He wants to overwhelm you and overcome us with fear. Fear of suffering. Fear of failure. Fear of man. Fear of losing people's approval. Fear of being out of control. Fear of powerlessness. Fear of pain. Fear of insignificance. Fear of death. And he wants to amplify and make those louder. Fear, fear, fear. He wants to play up and then play into our fears. And this is why scripture tells us over 2,000 times, do not fear. Do not fear. That we hold on to with faith. But with this bark of fear, with this, this growl, this roar, he wants to get us in range of his bite. And what is his bite? What is it? It's that he prowls around seeking to devour someone. He wants our fear to lead us into sin, to be devoured by sin. That's where he starts biting. Our fear can lead us into sin. There's a Christian therapist uh, named Jay Stringer, and he recently wrote an article about how fear and anxiety can actually lead us into sin. And he wrote this article called How Election Day Angst Triggers Porn Use. And he says election day uh, or week and other important events will actually naturally intensify our anxiety, our disappointment, and hope, and with it becomes the spread of porn use. So back in 2016 at the election, uh, porn consumption, right after the election in 2016, porn use increased by 33%. For the next week, beyond its normal usage. This was true for men and women, for conservative and progressive. You see, here's the thing when we don't know how to soothe our anxiety, porn offers for us a temporary relief at the expense of others. Or after our success, uh, we discover that our hopes in a candidate are not, as, are not a sufficient source of fulfillment. Porn offers a way to soothe our relief. Fear, and here's the point that I'm trying to make, is that fear and anxieties and even misplaced hopes, they can lead us into destructive sin. 
And so we fight a roaring fear and a devouring sin of the evil one. What do we fight it with? We fight it with faith, he says here. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, you and I need to be encouraged in our faith, knowing that we are not alone in our struggles. We are not alone in our suffering. Your faith has got to plug into the worldwide community of people, of Christians, the church. In your sufferings, you've got to be connected to the body. Meaning that it's not weird that Jesus is with us in our anxieties, in, in our fears, and in our struggles. He is with us because He went into it. And this brings us to the very God of grace. He says, after, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, the God of all grace, he says, grace saturates everything in this passage about humility, about anxiety, about our fears. It's grace. Grace comes from the God of all grace. Not a little bit of grace, not some grace, not a tiny bit of grace, but the God who gives all grace. And this God of all grace has called us into his glory, into the glory of Christ. And this is good news for us this morning because Christ Jesus, think about it, Christ Jesus himself was made low. Christ Jesus encountered the prowling lion in the wilderness. Christ Jesus was burdened with worry in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ Jesus was abandoned. Christ Jesus suffered. Christ Jesus was humiliated, clothed in our sin upon the cross. But after three days, we remember that the mighty hand of God exalted him, raised him from the dead, and seated him at the Father's right hand, and gave him all dominion. Jesus, his own ruined life was restored. His life was confirmed. He was strengthened with the power in the Holy Spirit. And he is established on the throne, and his dominion is forever. He was humiliated, but now he is exalted And He has called you and me into the same glory in which we hope that in Christ Jesus, you and I are in fact seated with Him even as we are humiliated, even as we are humbled. In Him, the mortal life that you lose, it will be restored in glory. The reputation that we lose will be confirmed and vindicated as God's beloved. The control and power and authority that we lose now will be strengthened and established, and we will rule with Him forever and ever. And that is good news, and it leads us to worship, to bow down, and to humble ourselves before this King of all grace. And as we worship this King of all grace, this is where we find the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Because we know it's all about Him. That He shall reign forever and ever. And we bow down before Him and we say, Soli Deo Gloria. You see, you and I cannot stand before the Grand Canyon and feel self-important. We cannot stand by the mountain top and feel like we're all that. We can't stand by the vastness of the ocean without being swept away in self-forgetfulness. We can't stand before the dominion of Jesus and not be humbled, even as we're exalted by His grace. And there's our humility. To the King and God of all grace be dominion and power and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.